0: Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, first, Pink Floyd's Roger Waters turns to poetry with Kill Everyone, an angry meditation on the troubled world we're living in today and why, from Afghanistan to who knows where next.
1: We'll say, Kill Bin Laden, kill Saddam Hussein, kill anyone collateral who might get in the way, kill all the dogs and shopkeepers, kill all the coppersmiths, kill everyone who chooses to be on the evil list, kill everyone who doesn't want to be our acolyte, kill everyone who disagrees that what we say is right. The concept of an average guy is patently absurd. There's too much differential in the herd. Just look at Bush and Cheney, then look at you and me. It's like comparing Shakespeare to reality TV. Is this the life we really want? Being murdered by these clowns? Are children crushed in rubble? Are we deafened by the sound of media mouths all moving in apparent unity, spewing out the mantra of the free? Free to plan the neoland, safe in their bomb-proof lairs, free to send our sons to war, our sons of course not theirs, free to burn and pillage to fill the family vault, free to claim it's dog eat dog and really not their fault. Fear drives the mills of modern man, fear keeps us all in line, fear of all those foreigners, fear of all their crimes. Is this the life we really want? It surely must be so for this is a democracy and what we all say goes. We all say, Kill Bin Laden, kill Saddam Hussein, kill anyone collateral who might get in the way, kill all the dogs and shopkeepers, kill all the coppersmiths, kill everyone who chooses to be on the evil list, kill everyone who doesn't want to be our acolyte, kill everyone who disagrees that what we say is right. It's gonna cost us trillions, already has in fact, but no price is too heavy to keep the faith intact because we believe in freedom, Human rights for everyone. Well, everyone that is except the ones we need to bomb. And if some of them are children and seem a bit forlorn, it's not our fault. They should have chosen somewhere different to be born. Anyway, I'm sure they'll all agree it's a success when we've tidied all the insurgents and tidied up the mess. Even though they may be crippled or rotting underground, they'll be happy when democracy is the only game in town. They can help to build our bases. They can wash our fancy cars. They can service all our carnal needs in pickup joints and bars. Against their religion, their religion's wrong. I'm sure they'll get the hang of it. Catch on before too long. Then they can all watch baseball. They can build a Disneyland, eat pizza and McDonald's, drink bourbon, start a band. I know, I know, no alcohol. The towel heads don't drink. They'll soon get used to it. We'll have to have a think. I digress, I'm sorry. What was my train of thought? Oh yes, now I remember. Is this what we all ought to be devoting our resources to to spread this rotten creed, teaching their dead children avarice and greed?
0: And in the Arts Express corporate media watch, a not Afghanistan alert. Jimmy Dore wants a U.S. intervention. The No Laughing matter satirical comedian and political commentator spoke to RT's Going Underground, Afshan Ratansi.
2: You want a U.S. intervention, a military intervention. Tell me about which country
3: you want the U.S. intervening in.
4: I think it's about I mean uh, because a lot of people are saying we need to stay in Afghanistan to help the women. I say how about if the United States takes about three or four thousand troops and invades Los Angeles and brings uh, health care and medical aid to, to and shelter to the uh, sixty thousand homeless people in in Los Angeles? How about we invade the inner cities of America? and we bring health care to those people, we bring shelter to those people, we bring medicine to those people, we, we bring uh, counseling to those people. How about we invade America and we start trying to help America? Uh, when is when is America gonna care about the women and, you know, one out of five kids in America lives in poverty. So if you wanna help people, why don't you give women and children, why don't you give women a, a living wage in the United States, give them health care and give them an education? Uh, Ironically, that's what the government of Afghanistan did up until we invented the Taliban. If you took so there's 600,000, according to statistics or 600,000 homeless people in America, a lot of those are women, a lot of those are children. Now, if you gave them each a thousand dollars stipend a month, a thousand dollars a month uh, to go get housing, uh, that would cost seven point two billion dollars a year. Uh, $7.2 billion. You know, we've been spending uh, $2 trillion over the last 20 years, $300 million a day to bomb and kill people in Afghanistan. So the United States, if it really cared about women, they could spend a pittance, $7.2 billion, to to uh, take care of the homeless people in the United States, give them a $1,000. They won't do it. So, uh... Yes, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer, Mitch McConnell, all the leaders on both parties—they know that uh, there that uh, one out of five children lives in poverty in the United States, along with their mothers, and they don't care.
0: And speaking of this country not caring about women's rights here, while denouncing the Taliban for the same, not to mention as a pretext for the occupation of Afghanistan for the past 20 years, a Taliban the U.S. brought to power to bring down the socialist government of Afghanistan back then that did promote women. Well, there is even more than meets the eye in addition to Jimmy Dore's scathing assessment, namely in part an FBI report that didn't include stranger violence and murder against women, that three U.S. women are murdered by their partners every day. Thousands of U.S. women have survived attempted murder, and with an alarming rise that can be considered an epidemic, 10 million women are victimized here every year. You're listening to Arts Express, and coming up next, Bob goes to jail. Who is Bob, and why has he written this unusual memoir? Well, Bob happens to be Rob Sedgwick, brother of famed actress Kyra Sedgwick, and whose brother-in-law is Kyra's spouse, Kevin Bacon. And Rob had this rather unconventional story to tell us, which he did, about being arrested with his friend Jordan by the DEA as a young man for possession of 250 pounds of pot. But in a truth-stranger-than-fiction period in his life back then, while out on bail, Sedgwick, an aspiring actor himself, whose biggest role has been in Die Hard with a Vengeance, was allowed to kill time while out on bail, starring in One Life to Live as well, a leader in a drug ring. Says Sedgwick in summing up his life back then, quote, I was really a mess, and I don't think I would be having this conversation with you right now. I don't know. I think we can all identify in my book with Disappointing Yourself. First, we'll hear a little from Bob Goes to Jail, which includes, in addition to his drug bust, a look back at getting high with sister Kyra Sedgwick as children, what brother-in-law Kevin Bacon has to say about the memoir, and the not-at-all surprising leniency in Sedgwick's sentencing as a rich white kid, considering that unfortunate state of affairs in this country's court system, guaranteeing liberty and justice for all who can afford it. Now, some excerpts from Bob Goes to Jail, read by Roger Wayne, with a musical backdrop of dark jazz, Bad Angels Noir, then Rob Sedgwick.
5: 1. So I had the load in front, and Jordan had the load in back, Jordan was saying, cash, cash, cash. I looked up, and there were eight to ten guys streaming into the lobby with more artillery than you've ever seen, and it just looked too real. I figured they had to be water pistols because they looked too detailed, too significant, too vivid, to be really real. My mind slowed everything down like Joe Montana, like Larry Bird. At first I thought, this is Jordan's birthday. These are friends of Jordan's that I don't know. Then I thought, nah, this is a joke. This is a joke, and these are friends of Jordan's that I don't know, even though I know all of Jordan's friends. Then I was spun around, and I saw myself in the lobby mirror with one of those cylinder machine guns at the base of my brain, and another gun at my side, and one to the middle of my back. They swung me back around. One guy was pistol whipping Jordan on the ground as they dragged me to the elevator. And the elevator was a prominent sign that read, No more than five people on the elevator at one time. All eight of us got on. It stalled. One of the guys brought out one of those huge hammer jobs that belonged on an anvil and started hammering the side of the elevator. I can get the car moving again, and they responded. better not do anything stupid. I had three guns on me, and I was cuffed. Who am I, Bruce Lee? I placed my foot on the sliding door of the elevator and pushed it open. That reactivated whatever ancient mechanism was on the fritz. We were on our way up. I told the guys about Tybalt, my dog, the love of my life reason I dragged my ass out of bed in the morning, usually clobbered with a hangover mean enough to paralyze a small country. They said that if he did anything, they would have to shoot him. Then one of the guys, Andy, I would find out later, said overlapping, look, I got dogs, I know how you feel. I'll let you in the apartment first. You can settle him down, and if he seems okay, we won't shoot him. I didn't give a about myself at that moment. If they shot my dog, I'd be next. I opened the door and spoke to Tybalt understood immediately that I was in deep, and that this was no time for monkey business. He backed up slowly, carefully, no fast moves, giving the semi-frenzied men a wide berth so they knew this was their ballgame, game. everyone else's rules were out the window. His paws were practically up, and he sat solemn and calm to cool everyone off. It worked. The pack of humans took a collective breath, and in a couple of brief but precious seconds Everything went from scary to just really bad. Everyone's trigger fingers seemed to relax. I knew these guys were some kind of cowboy superhero cops. As we entered the apartment, the first words out of anybody's mouth were not Miranda, but... Where's the cash? Where's the cash? There was no Miranda warning until we were well into the apartment. There was our first load. A refrigerator box filled with 250 pounds of dope, standing sentinel in the dining room like an upright coffin. And there were all the other accoutrements. Hefty trash bags to be filled. Bounce to offset the scent. Duffel bags from the now sadly defunct Morris Brothers. A neighborhood store across the street that had been around since before NBC had a color peacock, which would later be filled with pot to sell to other drug dealers. And a scale. Ralph Scott, soon to be revealed as the bad cop, asked me again where the cash was. I said I didn't know. He indicated the refrigerator box filled with 250 pounds of pot, and asked me if that was for personal use. I told him no. He asked what the bounce was for, and I told him. He asked me what the trash bags were for, and I told him. He asked me who Jordan was, I told him Jordan was in charge. He nodded a jar of Vaseline on the table in front of me, which I kept handy to smear on my winter-chapped lips, and suggested that I would need that in prison. It wasn't very nice, and it dawned on me that Yeah, I should stop answering Ralph's questions and talk to a lawyer. This time, we left the apartment in two shifts, so we wouldn't stall the elevator. Amazingly, we didn't run into any other tenants while leaving the building. I gave the narky doorman a look because he always stared at me like I was up to something. I was sure he was the one who tipped off the drug enforcement agency. On the way out, I twisted my body Houdini-style so my fingertips could sneak out the apartment keys to give the doorman so someone could take care of Tibble. Jordan had disappeared. They shoved me into the cruiser. I looked out the windows at the town shop, for braziers Shakespeare and Co, Zabar's. people freely walking up and down the wide boulevards of Broadway, doing stuff. My inalienable right to wander around footloose and fancy free just got snuffed. I was in the back of a cop car with my hands cuffed behind me, headed downtown. The car was hermetically sealed, quiet, almost serene. What's that exercise called, he asked. Dips, I said. Oh, and they're for your lower pecs and triceps, mainly. Christ, what a fat... And to think I used to swim in high school, not drown, and actually beat people. And he said, as he casually turned down 12th Avenue, I have a feeling things are gonna turn out okay for you. I know they seem bad now, but I think you're gonna be all right. Looking in the rearview mirror to catch his expression, I caught a glimpse of my own whiteness and figured it would give me a fairer shake. We arrived at 57th and 12th, home of car dealerships and DEA headquarters. It was a deliberately depressing area of town. Jordan was already there. We were usually pickle-silly with each other, but now there was no silly. Only a peculiar amount of mouth tension. We looked at each other as if this were the betrayal discovery we're seen in a movie. We were processed, fingerprinted, photographed and put in a cell together, both of us very weirded out. Jordan asked me what I told them and I said not much, just that the boxes were to be distributed, the bounce was there to cover the odor, the bags were to divvy the stuff up, that we used the scale to weigh stuff and that he, Jordan, was in charge. Jordan said those were probably not good things to say. Two. My sister and I are snorting coke in my apartment sized bedroom at 127 East 75th Street, the townhouse we live in that is twice as big as any east side townhouse. I'm 17 and Kira is 13. The house is so big we don't see the parents for days. The back staircase wraps around the elevator shaft and wherever the elevator is parked is the floor my stepfather Ben is on. You always hang out on any other floor. The coke is fantastic get it from Ned, who works as a chef down the street. He is so cool-looking, like Rod Stewart when he sang Maggie May." He's great friends with our cook, Linus, who teaches us all about drugs, amazing music, advanced debauchery, bohemia gone berserk. Linus instructs us to call the Coke recipes when we contact Ned in case the phone is being tapped. The surreptitiousness of this enterprise makes me feel not unlike Superfly, the title character in the song by the great Curtis Mayfield quality is ridiculous to the product uncut. a sparkly eggshell white rock that you shave off as you would the finest of truffles. It's eight time, right after school. And I'm delicately shearing this magnificent rock, but not too much. We want to save some for later. The anticipation of snorting it is so intense that our teeth ache. Kira keeps poking me, pushing me. I'm trying to be fast. Oh, man, that looks so amazing. Hurry, my sister, dresses like the love child of Mama Cass and Janis Joplin. Don't squeal so loud. I'm almost there. Hold on. I don't want to fuck up the rock. I can't wait. My little sister, who I would dive into traffic for, has the biggest mouth in New York City. Okay, Jesus, here, take some flake. Just a taste, she says, before greedily licking and running her index finger along the mirror to sop up cocaine dust. Um... Fafafredo, oh my god, my gums are numb already. Ned is the best. I've laid out the lines with militaristic care. Okay, done. Here you go. I give Kira the coke mirror first. I'm so happy, snort. God, so wonderful. I feel smarter. Does that sound stupid? Oh no, I mean, snort. Oh god, so pleasant, so wonderful. Anyway... Oh, yeah, of course you feel smarter, because it's going up your nasal passages, and that stimulates your brain, and your thinking becomes more fluid, more free, released from the drudgery and bondage of ordinary thoughts. Bang, bang, bang. Sweetheart, it's your mother. Open the door. You're taking pot, aren't you? No, Mom, we're not. Do you think? The words bumble out of my mouth, and I know my mother won't buy it. Kira appears beside me, bright and chipper, like she's got nothing to hide. Hi, Mom. Hi, sweetheart. You look like Janice Joplin. I need to take you to Saks. You're sure you're not taking pot? I'm sure, Mom, Kira says seriously. I don't believe you. Mom, Kira and I were just talking. It doesn't smell like pot in here, does it? No. So there it is. Okay, and stop grinding your perfect teeth. They're the only set you have, and you'll wear them down. Okay, Mom, sorry. I love you both so much. In unison. We love you, too. Bye, Mom. Exit mom. That was close. Oh yeah, my god. What happened to the coke? I thought for sure she just threw it onto the rug and rubbed it in. Here. My huge overcoat from the Salvation Army lies thrown across my office-sized desk. She gently lifts the coat. Sitting on top of the big mirror is a fist-sized message paper holder in a plastic case, its bottom hollowed out. Kira lifts the paper holder. The coke glistens and gleams smilingly, undisturbed.
0: Now, you've said that you didn't want to write any of this about drugs and your arrest in the past to protect your family, your sister Kyra Sedgwick and her husband Kevin Bacon. So why did you finally decide to write Bob Goes to Jail and why now?
2: Well, they're not terribly featured in it and it's really not. They're very peripheral characters. Uh, The story was, uh, I thought the uh, story itself would make a great story. So, um, 'cause we're not all James Bond and drug dealers and stuff like that. So and it's a uh, you know, first hand account of it. And that was written about thirty years ago and I did not want to specifically uh, bring uh, attention to them at that time. And that they're really I, I did a I did an interview with Town and Country and he said, Why didn't you bring them up more in the book? I said, They're not in the story. So if you if you read the book, they're really not in it that much. Hmm. Um, they're barely mentioned. And when I refer to my brother-in-law, there are a couple occasions I say Kevin Bacon, but when I talk, but because it's borne out to other characters, uh, but when I refer to him in the beginning, I just say he's an actor, and his name is Kevin, I don't even refer to him as, you know, a movie star person. They're really not, they don't figure in the book that much.
0: And Kevin Bacon wrote about your memoir that its contradictory, quote, painfully sad and hilarious at the same time, a universal story what many of us can relate to, silver spoon or not. What are your thoughts about his assessment and those opposites you express, painfully sad and funny at the same time?
2: Well, I think it's I, I, it's funny because the drug story, is it's, a, it's as if you were given an offer to be a drug dealer for a while and make all sorts of money, and you would think, I mean, well, you were probably raised so you thought, are you crazy? But um, when it got offered to me, I thought, yeah, this sounds like fun, I was in my 20s. And um, so the funny part is because I was so stupid about the whole thing, uh, so ignorant, and not, not even thinking there, there'd be severe consequences because it was only pot, but of course we were dealing, we got caught with a quarter of a ton. Uh, we do, do that twice a month, so it was substantial. Um, and this was before pot was being legalized. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's is funny because I'm not used to all this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and when actually guns are coming out and I have a contract on my head, and um, all sorts of people are mixed with me, I wasn't. I didn't think about that side of it. And and, and, and I guess the painful part is I, I dip back into the past. The front story is the is when we were busted and um, looking at five to forty in jail, and had a you know, things like probation officers and drug enforcement agencies dealing with guns pointed at you and all sorts of really not fun things and being in jail. And then, But then going back to the past to how we were raised, which was without much guidance and which leads to bad decision-making and there was a lot of abuse, too, which led to uh, substance abuse in order to deal with that pain. Um, so that's probably what he was referring to. Mm. Um, And I think the universality of it, I think we've all felt lost at some point. I think we've all felt that we made bad decisions at some point and that we've disappointed those that we love. Um, And we've all made bad mistakes. Mm. And how do we take responsibility for that and how do we move on from that? I think we could all identify with
0: that. Now it's no secret and often said that the court system we have in this country is is liberty and justice for all. Who can afford it? So what are your thoughts about that then and now? Especially we see so many who are caught with drugs who don't have that economic advantage you did and many may never get out of prison. And all you got was a suspended sentence.
2: I think it's awesome. I think it's it's totally true. If you can afford a good lawyer, chances are you'll be okay. Not across the board, but certainly you're going to get uh, you know, there's a much better shot. Uh, I, I think that I think it's terrible. I think it's absolutely terrible. Hmm. And you still people have, you have people in prison thirty years for selling a nickel bag, hmm. you know, in the eighties or something. It's it's awful.
0: And how much time did you spend in jail? And what was that experience like?
2: Um, I don't want to spoil alert about it, but it's a scary place. We were at the um, uh, Metropolitan Correctional Center downtown, which is sort of not fun. Um, that's where all heavy-duty federal criminals are, are
0: Busted when pot was totally illegal, that it's legal in many places in the country today.
2: Well, we got caught with a quarter ton, so I think something would happen regardless. But yeah, it's pretty ridiculous. And I remember talking to my lawyer at the time. Because I, I was a big drinker. I've been sober for 26 years, and uh, but I, you know, all alcohol and use compared to pot. You're preaching to the choir, but that. Time The law, what we got caught with, the judge could be your brother, but you were looking at five to 40 in jail. Mm. Five years being mandatory minimum sentence. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it's pretty ridiculous. But there you have it.
0: Yeah. And please talk a little about the surreal experience of doing drugs and being out on bail while at the same time playing characters involved with drugs as an actor.
2: Um, it was pretty funny because we were busted, and then I had—I was having a good film career. I had two uh, studio movies coming out, but and I had a lot of offers after we were busted. But I wasn't allowed to take them because I couldn't leave the Southern District of Manhattan. So I had to do a soap opera. I, a soap opera would have been open to me, and my lawyers said, "Go get a soap opera." And this particular soap opera was One Life to Live, and they'd always wanted me on the show. I found out later. And so I got a recurring gig as a strong arm in a drug ring. And of course, when I got that, the drug enforcement agency and the head prosecutor and my lawyers, everyone thought it was the most hysterical thing in the world. that here I was playing this on TV. Um, and a friend of mine in the show, I told him what the deal was and he thought it was, it was very, very funny. Um, and uh, so, and, the, sur- the surreal part, the whole year was surreal. You're, you're going to your pretrial probation officer. You're having to urinate in a cup. Your drug enforcement agency would just show up willy-nilly around town just to know this, let them know that they were tracking me. Um, I was doing a lot of drugs and alcohol at the time, so I was not fully cognizant. Um, you would always wake up in the morning what's that bad thing again? And it would be, oh yeah, I might be going to jail for a long time. Oh no. Which would mm-hmm. put a downer on your day. So, And up until sentencing, which was really surreal because, you know, we've all seen this on television shows and films for a thousand years, but when you're actually in it, that's my dog, sorry. <laughs> when you're actually in it, it's just, you can't believe this is happening. You know, and you think, and you feel your face on your face and you think, what? And so, so that's why a lot of times they say um, so-and-so seemed emotionally disconnected or not present when they were sentenced. Right. That's because you can't believe this is actually happening to
0: you. Yeah.
2: Um, it's just... It's an out-of-body experience.
0: And what would you like readers to come away with and know about you reading your book?
2: Oh, that's a big question. I don't know. I don't want to... <laughs> I don't want to put something on... They should take away whatever they take away with. I... Um, I, 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 I. Response has been overwhelmingly. Uh, I positive isn't the word. I'm just getting these text messages and emails from people who read it. How great it is, and how much they enjoyed it. And they couldn't put it down. And, um, I, uh, I don't know. I just hope that I hope people are entertained. I hope people think it's. I, I, I hope they can identify with it in some way. I think. I think I said this before. I think we all can identify with having made bad decisions, um, how that affects our lives, um, how, you know, disappointing loved ones, disappointing yourself, um, mm. and taking responsibility for that, where that leads you, um, and, and it sort of ends up with my dog, um, <laughs> I hope they find a dog they love <laughs> to be rescued, my dog Tibble sort of trips through the book and he, uh, died a long time ago, but he... Without him, I, I don't think I would have made it. Uh, he really, he, we always had that, that that guardian angel let someone to watch over me, and he really watched over me. Uh, he, uh, I was really a mess. And if I didn't have to be responsible for his life, I don't know if I would be having this conversation with you right now. So, um, yeah, go get a dog.
0: <laughs> okay, thank you, Rob Cedric, for calling into our show.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: Okay, bye. Take care, bye. And Bob goes to jail a memoir is published by rare bird books Hey buenos dias pedro
1: quieres que te corte el pelo Aquí en la frontera de los estados unidos sí.
2: Oh
0: yeah, hey man, listen,
2: whenever I'm in New York, I'm Tommy Chong, I kind of created teaching Chong, and I listen
0: to Arts Express non-stop, because it's the only show that really tells you what's going on. we'll go out now on Arts Express with the Radio Drama Corner and a special feature solo presentation of A White Heron by Sarah Jewett performed by Jack Shalom. Sarah Jewett was a 19th century American novelist, short story writer, and poet best known for her regional writing set around the southern seacoast of Maine and now A White Heron.
3: Hi, this is Jack Shalom. This September, we celebrate the birthday of author Sarah Jewett, born September 3rd, 1849. Her short stories and poetry were infused with local color and country life, but there are deeper themes running through her work as well. And feminist critics have championed her writing for its rich account of women's lives and voices. And ecologically-minded critics have praised her works for her deep love of the natural world. Today I'll be reading one of her most famous stories, A White Heron, where a young girl has to decide what's most important to her in life. And now our radio adaptation of A White Heron. Just before eight o'clock, a little girl was driving home her cow A plodding, dilatory, provoking creature in her behavior, but a valued companion for all that. Sylvia wondered what her grandmother would say because they were so late. Mrs. Tilly was only thankful as she waited that she had Sylvia nowadays to give such valuable assistance. Everybody said that it was a good change for a little maid who had tried to grow for eight years in a crowded manufacturing town. But as for Sylvia herself, it seemed as if she had never been alive at all before she came to live at the farm. Afraid of folks, old Mrs. Tilly said to herself with a smile, after she had made the unlikely choice of Sylvia from her daughter's houseful of children, and was returning to the farm. When they reached the door of the lonely house, Sylvia whispered that this was a beautiful place to live in and she never should wish to go home. The cow stopped long at the brook to drink, and Sylvia stood still and waited, letting her bare feet cool themselves in the shoal water. She waded on through the brook as the cow moved away, and listened to the thrushes with a heart that beat fast with pleasure. She was not often in the woods so late as this, and it made her feel as if she were a part of the grey shadows and the moving leaves. She was just thinking how long it seemed since she first came to the farm a year ago and wondering if everything went on in the noisy town just the same as when she was there, when the thought of the great red-faced boy who used to chase and frighten her made her hurry along the path to escape from the shadow of the trees. Suddenly. This little woods girl is horror-stricken to hear a clear whistle, not very far away. Not a bird's whistle, which would have a sort of friendliness, but a boy's whistle, determined and somewhat aggressive. Sylvia left the cow and stepped discreetly aside into the bushes, but she was just too late. The enemy had discovered her, and called out in a very cheerful and persuasive tone, Hello, a little girl, how far is it to the road? And trembling Sylvia answered almost inaudibly, A good ways. She did not dare to look boldly at the tall young man, who carried a gun over his shoulder. But she came out of her bush and again followed the cow, while he walked alongside. I've been hunting for some birds, the stranger said kindly and I have lost my way and need a friend very much. Don't be afraid, he added gallantly. Speak up and tell me what your name is, and whether you think I can spend the night at your house and go out gunning early in the morning. Sylvia was more alarmed than before. She hung her head as if the stem of it were broken, but managed to answer, Sylvie, with much effort, when her companion again asked her name. Mrs. Tilly was standing in the doorway when the trio came into view. The cow gave a loud moo by way of explanation. Where'd she tuck herself away this time, Sylvie? But Sylvia kept an awed silence. The young man stood his gun beside the door and dropped a lumpy game bag beside it. Then he bade Miss Tilly good evening and repeated his wayfarer's story and asked if he could have a night's lodging. Put me anywhere you like, he said. I must be off early in the morning before day. But I am very hungry indeed. You can give me some milk at any rate, that's plain. (laughs) Dear sakes, yes, responded the hostess, whose long slumbering hospitality seemed to be easily awakened. You're welcome to what we've got. I'll milk right off and you make yourself at home. Now step round and set a plate for the gentleman, Sylvie. And Sylvia promptly stepped. She was glad to have something to do, and she was hungry herself. The hostess gossiped frankly, adding presently that she had buried four children, so Sylvia's mother and the son who might be dead in California were all the children she had left. Sylvie takes after him, the grandmother continued affectionately. There ain't a foot of ground she don't know her way over, and the wild creatures count her one of themselves. Squirrels she'll tame to come and feed right out of her hands, and all sorts of birds. Last winter, I believe, she'd have scanted herself of her own meals, to have plenty to throw out amongst them, if I hadn't kept watch." "'Oh, so Sylvie knows all about the birds, does she?' he exclaimed, as he looked round at the little girl. "'I'm making a collection of birds myself. I've been at it ever since I was a boy. There are two or three very rare ones I've been hunting for these five years, I mean to get them on my own ground if they can be found. Do you cage em up? asked Mrs. Tilly. Oh, no, they're stuffed and preserved, dozens and dozens of them, and I've shot or snared every one myself. I caught a glimpse of a white heron a few miles from here on Saturday, and I have followed it in this direction. You would know the heron if you saw it, the stranger continued eagerly. A queer, tall, white bird with soft feathers and long, thin legs. And it would have a nest, perhaps, in the top of a high tree, made of sticks, something like a hawk's nest. Sylvia's heart gave a wild beat. She knew that strange white bird, and had once stolen softly near where it stood in some bright green swamp grass, away over at the other side of the woods. I can't think of anything I should like so much as to find that heron's nest, the handsome stranger was saying. I would give ten dollars to anybody who could show it to me, and I mean to spend my whole vacation hunting for it if need be. Mrs. Tilly gave amazed attention to all this. No amount of thought that night could decide how many wished-for treasures the ten dollars so lightly spoken of would buy. The next day the young sportsman hovered about the woods and Sylvia kept him company. Having lost her first fear of that friendly lad who proved to be most kind and sympathetic he told her many things about the birds and what they knew and where they lived and what they did with themselves. And he gave her a jackknife but she thought as great a treasure as if she were a desert islander. All day long he did not once make her troubled or afraid, except when he brought down some unsuspecting singing creature from its bow. Sylvia could not understand why he killed the very birds he seemed to like so much. But as the day waned, Sylvia still watched the young man with loving admiration. She had never seen anybody so charming and delightful. The woman's heart, asleep in the child, was vaguely thrilled by a dream of love. Some premonition of that great power stirred and swayed these young creatures who traversed the solemn woodlands with soft-footed, silent care. They stopped to listen to a bird's song they pressed forward again eagerly parting the branches speaking to each other rarely and in whispers the young man going first and sylvia following fascinated a few steps behind with her gray eyes dark with excitement she grieved because the longed for white heron was elusive but she did not lead the guest she only followed and there was no such thing as speaking first. The sound of her own unquestioned voice would have terrified her. It was hard enough to answer yes or no when there was need of that. At last evening began to fall and they drove the cow home together, and Sylvia smiled with pleasure when they came to the place where she heard the whistle and was afraid only the night before. Half a mile from home, At the farther edge of the woods, where the land was highest, a great pine tree stood, the last of its generation. Sylvia knew it well. She had always believed that whoever climbed to the top of it could see the ocean. Now she thought of the tree with a new excitement, for why, if one climbed it at break of day, could not one see all the world? and easily discover from whence the white heron flew, and mark the place, and find the hidden nest. What fancy triumph and delight and glory for the later morning when she could make known the secret! It was almost too real and too great for the childish heart to bear. All night the young sportsman and his old hostess were sound asleep, but Sylvia's great design kept her broad awake and watching. She forgot to think of sleep. Afraid the morning would after all come too soon, she stole out of the house. There was the huge tree asleep yet in the paling moonlight, and small and silly Sylvia began with utmost bravery to mount to the top of it with tingling, eager blood coursing the channels of her whole frame, with her bare feet and fingers that pinched and held like birds' claws to the monstrous ladder reaching up, up, almost to the sky itself. The way was harder than she thought. She must reach far and hold fast. The pitch made her thin little fingers clumsy and stiff as she went round and round the tree's great stem, higher and higher upward. The sparrows and robins in the woods below were beginning to wake and twitter to the dawn, yet it seemed much lighter there, aloft in the pine tree. And the child knew she must hurry if her project were to be of any use. The old pine must have loved his new dependent, more than all the hawks and bats and moths and even the sweet-voiced thrushes was the brave beating heart of the solitary great-eyed child and the tree stood still and frowned away the winds that june morning while the dawn grew bright in the east sylvia's face was like a pale star when the last thorny bough was passed and she stood trembling and tired but wholly triumphant high in the tree top, Toward that glorious east flew two hawks. How low they looked in the air from that height when one had only seen them before far up. Sylvia felt as if she too could go flying among the clouds. Westward the woodlands and farms reached miles and miles into the distance. Truly, it was a vast and awesome world. The birds sang louder and louder. At last, the sun came up, bewilderingly bright. Sylvia could see the white sails of ships out at sea, and the clouds that were purple and rose-colored and yellow at first began to fade away. Where was the white heron's nest in the sea of green branches? Look, look, a white spot of him, like a single floating feather, comes up from the dead hemlock and grows larger and rises and comes close at last and goes by the landmark pine with steady sweep of wing and outstretched slender neck and crested head. And wait, wait. Do not move a foot or a finger, little girl. Do not send an arrow of light and consciousness from your two eager eyes. For the heron has perched on a pine bough not far beyond yours and cries back to his mate on the nest and plumes his feathers for the new day. The child gives a long sigh a minute later when a company of shouting catbirds comes also to the tree, and vexed by their fluttering and lawlessness the solemn heron goes away. She knows his secret now, the wild, light, slender bird that floats and wavers and goes back like an arrow presently to his home in the green world beneath. Then Silvio, well satisfied, makes her perilous way down again, not daring to look far below the branch she stands on, wondering over and over again what the stranger would say to her and what he would think when she told him how to find his way straight to the heron's nest. Sylvie? Sylvie? called the busy old grandmother again and again, but nobody answered, and the small husk bed was empty, and Sylvia had disappeared. The guest waked from a dream. He was sure from the way the shy little girl looked once or twice yesterday that she had at least seen the white heron, and now she must really be made to tell. Here she comes now, paler than ever, and her worn old frock is torn and tattered and smeared with pine pitch. The grandmother and the sportsman stand in the door together and question her, and the splendid moment has come to speak of the dead hemlock tree by the green marsh. But Sylvia does not speak after all. Though the old grandmother fretfully rebukes her, and the young man's kind appealing eyes are looking straight in her own, he can make them rich with money. He has promised it, and they are poor now. He is so well worth making happy, and he waits to hear the stories she can tell. What is it that suddenly forbids her and makes her dumb? Has she been nine years growing, and now, when the great world for the first time puts out a hand to her, must she thrust it aside for a bird's sake? She remembers how the white heron came flying through the golden air, and how they watched the sea in the morning together, and Sylvia cannot speak. She cannot tell the heron's secret and give its life away. Dear loyalty, that suffered a sharp pang as the guest went away disappointed later in the day, that could have served and followed him and loved him as a dog loves. Many a night Sylvia heard the echo of his whistle haunting the pasture path as she came home with the loitering cow. She even forgot her sorrow at the sharp report of his gun and the sight of thrushes and sparrows dropping silent to the ground, their songs hushed and their pretty feathers stained and wet with blood. Were the birds better friends than their hunter might have been? Who can tell? Whatever treasures were lost to her, woodlands and summertime, remember, bring your gifts and graces and tell your secrets to this lonely country child. You've been listening to A White Heron by Sarah Jewett. Adapted and performed by myself, Jack Shalom, for Arts Express with host, Prairie Miller.
0: And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express, expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.